Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hey, it's Emily. When we started this podcast back in January of 2020, probably like a lot of things that have happened since then, we couldn't imagine that journey we'd go on. So as an end for season one, in the next two episodes, we're going to be taking a look back on some of the great guests that we've had on the TVP podcast. Juan and I have gone through the entire Valley team and asked each of the members for their favorite moments and what has stuck out with them the most. We're going to call these two episodes quilt episodes, as you see they're a patchwork of all the great things that we've learned so far. First up, we've got Juan and Andy Evans reflecting on Taylor Pearson, who appeared on the podcast in September of 2020, and Air Marshal Sir Graham Stacey in February 2020. So, Andy, um, you have been one of the masterminds behind the Vibe Perspective podcast, and it might be a good idea for you to maybe walk us through how this project came about, the whole idea of... Um, having the opportunity to spend some time with experts in different fields, not only in finance, but uh, trying to reach very broad to people that were experts in dealing with making decisions under uncertainty. Yeah, um, I think Mastermind's a bit of a, a grand and probably a bit generous, uh, Juan. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's been a really interesting uh, set of podcasts to do. And I guess it for me, it's fallen into different categories. So the, the first was just the opportunity to speak to people who are experts in decision-making. So people like Annie Duke, Michael Mabusan. And I, I guess this wasn't a podcast, but we also had the opportunity to speak to David Spiegelhalter, who, you know, all, all experts in the, the area of decision-making under uncertainty. The, the, the kind of second thing which I thought was kind of really eye-opening was, that, and this was the genesis of the whole project, the idea of listening to other people who aren't in the finance world or aren't really thinking about it in exactly the same way that we are, but how they deal with decision-making in uncertainty. So, you know, speaking to people like uh, Sir Graham Stacey um, and listening to those podcasts that, that you did with Hannah Mills and, and the Ice Maidens, I, I found that kind of really interesting to see how people approach um, kind of difficult decisions. And then I, I think the other kind of thing was the, the number of references to quite similar tools to try and deal with uncertainty. So things like um, using devil's advocate was something which came up um, a, a few times, you know, particularly from um, some, some of the interviews with the military people, um, or, or thinking about how to overcome biases. So thinking about base rates, um, obviously Michael Mabusan talked about an, a number of things in his toolkit that he uses. And so um, I think they're, they're probably the areas where, where there seem to be a, a constant reference or, or returning to, to similar themes or topics. Red teaming is good. Let's start off with that. Great. Um, the next question is, what do you mean by red teaming? 
and and there are you know it should be easy I guess that's probably a dictionary definition but but certainly in my experience then you know I've seen it I've seen people think they've got red teams and the red team basically plays devil's advocate um, challenges assumptions just you know sort of just if people are analyzing by method a the red team will analyze by method B just to see if you end up with the same result that said other people when they talk about red team is what others call a red cell, is you've got a group of people who are trained, educated to think like the competitor. You know, if you don't want to know what the competitor bank is going to do in a situation, then you can phone them up and ask them, but they might not tell you. So you might have a team in here who who thinks like the competitor. In, in a military environment, you know, you, you will have a, a red cell that, that, that does the same analysis, but uses enemy doctrine enemy tactics, enemy processes, and see what the conclusion comes up with. Actually, red team, red cell, no matter what you call them, I think they're both important. So, so I, w- I would say probably do both. Next question is be very clear what you want them to do. I mean, if you want them to be the enemy, tell them. If you want them to be alternate analysis, tell them, because actually they're different things and you might get strange results if they think they're doing A and you want them to do B. Choose who you've got in very carefully. I, I mean, that there is an art to it. Um, that, that you want people who free think, who've got confidence, who can work on their own, um, who are flexible, adaptable, probably resilient, because it's not necessarily the most popular job in the world, disagreeing with most of your mates and work colleagues occasionally. So so choose the team very carefully, um, but nurture them, encourage them, support them, trust them. The last thing I would say, good red teaming starts at the beginning of a process and goes all the way through. I mean, a lot of organisations make the mistake, they bring the red team in at the end and it feels to everyone involved like their homework is being marked. You know, it's gone up to teacher who's going to red ink it and send it back. But that's not collaboration. That's not teamwork. That's not getting the best out of an organisation. So I would absolutely say bring the red team in. The red team should be assisting, giving alternate views with the mission analysis, with the decision making, with the timelines, with everything that goes on. And at the end of it, you know, you should all be able to slap each other on the back saying, didn't we collectively, including the red team, do a great job here? That's, that's really interesting. Uh, one of the things that you, you just mentioned is how you like very much those esoteric uh, topics, discussions that took place or have taken place over the course of the last two years. And, and one of those topics is the concept of ergodicity, which many people haven't really heard before. So I was, I was kind of hoping that you could elaborate a little bit more about um, what ergodicity is and why is it important for us to understand and and how, what was the main takeaways from that specific episode with Taylor Pearson? Yeah, I guess the ergodicity one's interesting because I think just the very name of it often turns people off. It sounds uh, complex and sounds something to do with physics or, or whatever. But it's And so I, I don't think it's really a mental model that's been widely adopted, but it's it's really, really important. And um, I think Ke- Kev on the team has been a, a big follower of things in the ergodicity world. And, you know, Taleb talks about it in his books and Ollie Peters has been um, someone who's really campaigned to get the uh, the profile of, of ergodicity up there. So do- doing that podcast, I-, I thought, was incredibly interesting. And, you know, j- just a very brief synopsis of what it is and why it's important. Um, you know, it's, it's the difference um, if you were in a game of Russian roulette. Um, hopefully no one ever finds themselves in the game of Russian roulette. But it's a difference of uh, thinking about whether you're, uh, what, what's going to happen to you 
if you fire uh, six different guns with one bullet in them um, once. So you would hope that if you were lucky, you could come out the other side um, versus firing the same gun six times with one bullet in it, where you know the outcome's not going to be good if that, if that happens. And so it's the importance of the arrow of time in, in, um, in your returns when you're thinking about things in probabilities. And that has quite profound implications um, in, in a number of different fields. And so it's quite important to understand that the, whether the situation you're in is ergodic or, or, or non-ergodic. And so um, I thought that was a really interesting, I think highly advise anyone who doesn't really know about the topic to have a listen because I think it goes right back to the basics of, of how that works. The classic examples tend to be related to, to gambling because it's, it's sort of easier to measure. So to start with maybe the gambling example and then we can go into some others uh, from there. You know, if you have, um, again, ensemble versus the time shade, you have 100 people that go into Caesar's Palace Casino and they're all going to play um, blackjack. And let's say that, you know, all these people have learned some card counting method. Uh, you know, they know how to, to beat the dealer. They know how to, to have an edge on the house that, you know, on average, each of these people is going to make, um, you know, 50% of the $1,000 they're in. So they're going to come in with $1,000, they're going to win 500 and they're going to leave with um, $1,500. However, the strategy also has the risk that on average, one out of 100 gamblers goes bust and loses all their money. So 99 out of 100 win, uh, one out of 100 uh, loses and, you know, leaves the casino. So in, in sort of the ensemble average, the, the one person that goes bust that, that blows up um, doesn't affect the other. You know, if, if gambler 28 loses all their money, it doesn't affect uh, gambler 29 or, or gambler 27. Uh, if you take it to the time scenario, you have one person and they're going to go into the casino uh, every single day. They're going to start with $1,000 and they're going to employ uh, the same strategy. You know, it starts off, they're doing very well. Uh, you know, on day one, they start with $1,000. On day two, they have uh, $1,500. By day 18, they have a million dollars. By day 27, they have $56 million. And then day 28, uh, they go bust uh, and lose everything. And that's... Um, that's the end of the, the strategy. So again, this is uh, this is a non-ergodic uh, system because the uh, the time average and the ensemble average um, doesn't equal each other. And uh, you know, to maybe make a more practical example, this is equally true in terms of uh, investments. That if even if you know, sort of the assessments we typically talk about investments, even if you get the probabilities right, uh, no one can get the returns of the market unless they have uh, infinite pockets. And I don't care about the returns that an average investor gets in a particular portfolio or strategy or whatever. I care about the returns that, uh, that I get. So if I, if I, you know, blow up on day 28, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in no way comforted that someone else, uh, did not. So, you know, if an investor has to eventually reduce his or her exposure because of losses, margins calls, because they retire, because a loved one gets sick, um, you know, whatever it is, those returns will be eventually divorced from, from the market. It's a, uh, it's a non-ergotic system. Next, we have Vera German and Liam Nunn on Jake Taylor, whose episode came out in January 2021. I think my, my favorite one, generally, maybe even, I, I think I probably liked it even more than the Santiago episode, is the, the one with Jake Taylor. So the reason why I liked it so much is I think Jake is a fascinating individual and 
he he's a very committed investor. I think you you can see that, but he always tries to put investment in wider context of things. So he talks about things which are of tangential re relevance, but are in the end they they inform his worldview such that he becomes a better investor. So, for instance, I thought the point he made about data frequency was was really interesting. How we all think that we have so much information, so much data on stock market history, uh, whilst in reality, I think uh, remind me if, if I if I'm wrong with the numbers, but I think there have been 16 or 18 bear markets uh, since the 1920s. That's that's really not very much at all. Um, and how finance professionals like to think that we have this ability to forecast things because we have so much data that we can use to inform our decisions, but in reality versus the, the number of inorganic interactions in the history of the world. For example, this data set is absolutely tiny. And he, he uses that point to caution investors against being too confident in their own forecasts. Take something like the, the height of Mount Everest. You know, what is the height? If you were to ask Google, it would say it's 29,000 feet uh, or 29,029 feet. Well, that's true, but it's also not true because it is constantly changing the height based on the plate tectonics pushing up and the wind erosion scrubbing it off. And the time that we've been talking, the height of Everest has changed as a fact. Okay, so that's mm -hmm. on one end of the spectrum. On the other <laughs> end of the spectrum, we have something like physics, which, you know, Aristotle had a version of physics that was updated and supplanted by Newton, which was then eventually updated by Einstein and relativity. And so, you know, that is a much slower degradation, but all facts have a half-life to them and we have to be conscious of that. So when I try to draw my analogies in these, these veggie segments that I do, I, I have three primary buckets that I'm looking for. Uh, and, it, and it has to do with how big of an N is produced in, in this particular domain. So number one is the, the inorganic universe. And that's, you know, about 13.7 billion years old that's a lot of interactions of matter and energy running into each other, uh, you know, gravity, all of these things are, have a, there's a very, very large in involved. Um, the next bucket that I look at is biology. And, you know, that's roughly, call it 3.7 billion years life on earth. Uh, that's also a lot of interactions of things eating other things, uh, you know, evolution playing out. Um, and then the last bucket is, is human history, which, you know, the Sumerian cuneiform was, you know, roughly 5,000 years ago. So we have written history from then. But, you know, we probably have about 200,000 years worth of, of human history. And us humans are probably about 2 million years. Like we would by identify that if we saw someone from 2 million years ago, like, oh, that looks like a human um, and not something else. <laughs> um, so we have these very, very large data sets. And I think one of the things that's interesting about finance is that there is the illusion of large data sets, but I'm not so sure that it's always as solid as it looks. So let's take something like market yeah. prices. We could take every single little squiggle per second and have millions and millions of data points on pricing, right? However, yeah. the true data that we're looking for, the really big moves, according to Fidelity, I think there's only been 16 bear markets since 1926. So our real in often that we're kind of looking for is much, much smaller, which means we have much less predictive ability uh, and that we should probably be a lot more humble on uh, when we try to make 
financial analogies about things. We really just don't know. Like we, we can't say a whole lot. Uh, and I think we, we often forget that because we're surrounded by so many numbers. We feel like the data are so rich that we, we, can, we have more room to stand than we do. Uh, but compared to the inorganic universe, human history, and, and biology, we're not even close, right? And so we should probably be a lot more humble yeah. than we are. I mean, there's a lot of, it covered a lot of different areas, but I think the one bit that really jumped out to me and that made me think about our process quite a lot was when he spoke about keeping track of past investment decisions he's made and and trying to make sure that he learns the right lessons from mistakes. And he he gave the example, he said, you know, we only ever really remember the most visceral, like high profile examples of, of past investments mistakes. I think he used the example of uh, not buying Walmart at some point or, or not buying Amazon 15 years ago when he perhaps had the chance. And our, our brains tend to think in, in stories and anecdotes, and it's always those most memorable anecdotes that are the ones that we use to, to judge our decision making just automatically. And, and Jake made the point that that isn't very scientific. You kind of, you need to track a much broader data set and try and get like a fully representative sample of decisions. If, if you're going to be accurate and stand a chance of learning from your mistakes. And he, he came up with this concept that I'd never heard of before where he, he, he spoke about tracking an, an anti portfolio, like tracking all the investment ideas that you reject and then monitoring them systematically as like a as a anti version of your portfolio, and then going back and judging them over time to see whether you've made systematic mistakes and whether you know you can improve your process over time by looking at every decision you kind of make. And I, I really like that because I thought um, you know clearly on the value team we do something quite similar with after action reviews where we look at our research from five years ago and we we try and compare it to today. But it's just cool to hear that. A, different investor who does a kind of different style of value investing to us had a similar idea for his funds. And I, I really like that idea of an anti-portfolio. And that's something that I've tried to start tracking as part of, um, as we start doing more research. We all readily remember the, the big, you know, Amazon IPO that you didn't buy. And the, you know, it was obvious that I should have bought Google. I use it all the time. Of course, that should have been a good investment, right? And we remember these very bright, shiny, large, data points, but we, we ignore all the close calls, the things that maybe you thought about buying, but you didn't buy, and that turned into a zero, right? So, we're, we're not treating this in a very scientific way when we try to assess our opportunity costs. We just look at these little anecdotes that float around in our brains and go, oh man, I missed out on that big one. You know, if you're Buffett, I didn't buy Walmart in the 80s, even though it seemed like a layup, right? So, I think we have to be a little bit more scientific and actually track what are the things that we rejected and, you know, and what is that, what did that mean? What I would call, we like to call it an anti-portfolio. So it's, it's all the things that I, I thought about and I rejected it. And like you alluded to, the real magic happens when you start to track why you rejected it, right? What was the filter that was used to screen that out? And now you can start to see as, as you gather data on that, where are your filters helping or hurting you? Now, for me personally, I'm, I, I'm wired to be a little abhorrent to too much leverage on a, in a company. And I know that about myself, but I can't tell you for certain yet whether that helps me or hurts me. And I will eventually be able to tell you when I have a big enough data set of tracking my opportunity cost, whether that particular filter has been a hindrance or a help. Uh, but it's too early to tell for me. 
another possible place that this might be really helpful is, you know, Buffett famously has this, this tray on his desk that's called a too hard pile, right? And he puts things that are too hard to figure out. He throws them in that pile. Well, especially if you're starting out, how, I mean, it's very possible that everything goes into your too hard pile, right? Like you just, I don't know hardly anything about anything. Uh, what if you were tracking what the opportunity cost was of things that you were putting in your too hard pile and you saw that like, oh my God, there's all these returns in there that I've been rejecting. Maybe I need to like dig a little bit harder. Like maybe there's gold just a couple inches down under the dirt. If I was just put in a little bit more work, uh, maybe that would be the impetus to, to try a little bit harder. Or maybe it turns out that it's not the case and that it was smart to reject those things in the too hard pile and maybe you're properly calibrated but you don't know that answer until you actually keep track of those numbers. So I think it's a, a really good practice to track your re- the returns of the things that you rejected and also why and draw correlations between your filters and, and the eventual outcomes and using those as a way to adjust your process. Simon Adler wanted to speak about Hannah Mills, whose episode came out in November 2020. It was a really interesting episode, fascinating to be able to speak to Hannah. Um, and one of the things she talked about, which I thought was most interesting, was recognizing when the right opportunities are to dial up risk and when the opportunities are to play it safe. And I think that does have a parallel with, with what we're doing as value investors. I thought that was really interesting, her, her recognition that for herself and for sailing, it was important to recognize when to take more risk and when to take less risk. And I think that's also important in fund management. I think we uh, can look back on the last year as an opportunity to take more risk, which I think we took advantage of. And then that's something we need to continue to think about going forward. So uh, I found that especially interesting. It's definitely still a mixture of of natural and process and and, um, sort of forcing yourself to make the sensible logical decisions and definitely when the pressure comes on um, that's when I fall back a bit more to the sort of process and forcing myself to make what I know are the sensible right unrisky decisions but ultimately you know you're not going to win an Olympic Games if you just do that you're going to need to be able to recognize those moments where your gut and your heart are still telling you actually you need to take a bit more of a risk here and you need to put yourself out there and you need to trust yourself that you are good at what you do and and take those take those risks when when you need to so it's it's, it's still a mixture and i'm gonna see if sophie's got any questions at the moment but the, the one i was just interested when you so you kind of have the safe place and the, and the let's put tone up the risk place do you have a view as to whether you're better at decision making when you're in the safe place or whether you're in the, you know, here's, a, here's an opportunity, I'm going to take a risk here? Hmm. I think when you're in the safe place, your ability to bounce back from a bad decision is better. Um, so, you know, if you make one mistake, you're likely to then make the next decision the right one. Whereas when I'm a bit more in my sort of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but your kind of less rigid decision-making state where you're a bit more risk, risk-taking. risk I think if you make a mistake, it's much easier to make another mistake um, and it kind of can compound the issue a bit more. It's probably how I'd look at it. Finally, Roberta Barr's favourite episode was with Hector Ibarra, who appeared on the podcast in July of 2020. So one podcast that I found super interesting was your interview with Hector Ibarra. 
the CEO of um, Global Parametrics. So I think I found Hector's podcast particularly interesting because I could begin to draw a few parallels to some degree, at least, between the challenges that they face and how they go about measuring climate risk with some of the challenge that um, we're facing when we measure ESG risks. So perhaps for one example, I think he went through some of the hurdles that they face, um, which, to be honest, is similar to what the hurdles that we face as well in the investment world. So I think Hector spoke about the lack of data, for example, to understand risk and how he only had 20 or 30 years worth. And that wasn't always enough to draw conclusions, which is definitely also something that we face. So I'm not going to pretend that the sort of scientific models we use are nearly as sophisticated as the ones that they do for like weather patterns and such like. But I guess the sort of deviation we have from having the comfort of over 150 years worth of data, as we do with value, to only having 20 or so years worth of robust evidence, um, robust data to form an opinion, which is evidence-based, um, including patches where that data can be a bit um, patchy. I guess that really resonated with me um, because that's also something that I see as a challenge for us. And without wanting to um, compromise our integrity um, or the sort of scientific nature of our process is something that we're having to come to terms with and something that we're having to deal with. That's a fascinating question in the world that I live, which is the climate risk. So if you you, you bear me, well, bear with me, it'd be easier to, to start with a more simple example. So I think when we measure risks, there are two dimensions that are very important, that you have the data to understand the risk and that, that they representative of the risk that you are trying to measure. If, if we go to a very simple example, if you and I look today at the statistics of the UK government and we look at mortality rates or birth rates, there's a lot of data. We probably are going to agree on, on, the, on, uh, on the rate of that, 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 that event is happening. We can look at the history, the, the variations, and it will be very easy for you and I, if we're talking about risk or if we're trying to buy and selling things, it's, it's easy to, to create a price discovery uh, conversation or what the risk is measured because A, the data is representative of the risk we're talking about and the system is not changing very fast so the uncertainty around it makes it uh, manageable. In the world that I, I, I work in climate, I don't have the, the luxury in either of those. When I look at uh, climate in any region of the world, if you look at, if, if at best you have 20, 30 years of data, it means nothing in the context of the climate trends of, of a system like the, the Earth. So, so the data is the data is scarce. It's not necessarily representative. And then you have the dynamics of the system itself. So you go like to climate change uh, or, or drivers of variability. That system is changing. So on, on top of not having you the data, that means that the data you have is not telling you any any relevant story about how the risk might, might look like in the future. So it's a compound problem when you were looking about climate risk. So then the only the only alternative you have to try to come to a reasonable view of risk is take a scientific view. So you employ a lot of scientists that try to look at indirect ways of uh, creating a synthetic history and, and assessable volatility. And based on that scientific information, you try to come with a measure of risk. The challenge when you do this is that because there is not, not, there is not a natural standard on price, what happens is buyer and seller have a 
completely different perception of risk. And in a lot of cases, there's, there's such a mismatch that sometimes it's not possible to create the, 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 like the, like the equilibrium so they can be financial transactions. So I'm very happy that you brought up Hector's episode because that was one of my favorites, uh, favorite episodes uh, so far recorded. And and some of the uh, one of the reasons for that is I really liked how he was thinking and approaching the how he was thinking about risk and approaching risk, and 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 yes. and he had like this great analogy um, about um, how when pilots are training, they 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 go into the simulator. And they are tested through all range of realistic scenarios, even those that might have very low probability of happening, still they are exposed to a very wide range of outcomes so that they are, that's part of how they are trained and ingrained and how they understand risks. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I also found both of those examples super interesting as well, especially as you say, the one around um, pilots um, and their trainings. I guess that sort of also resonates with some of the ESG risks that we face because we have to put a price on every risk that we see, every investment risk that we see. And we have to price what we think that's worth and the upside we require for it. And sort of to a similar extent, like a lot of that's very probabilistic. We don't exactly know the outcome. We don't know the extent of it. And there's probabilities and sort of error bars around every aspect that goes into that. Um, so for something where there's not always an incredible amount of data or back testing that we can do, that's certainly a challenge that we face. So if you look at how pilots are trained when they go into the flight simulators, they are tested through what I call like realistic scenarios, even low probability scenarios, but you're, you're creating a view of the whole set of risks. You have an understanding of, of, of what are the, the, the scenarios that uh, uh, someone piloting an airplane can face. We don't have that in climate because it's very complex. So the problem is people can talk about climate change, but it's very different to characterize it from a scientific point of view. So if you look at the uncertainty around how the climate will be behaving 50 years based on different trends of uh, population growth, economic activity, and the uncertainty around those estimates are are very high. And also the computational needs to run this, this kind of uh, uh, detailed scenarios also is pushing the limits of even the most sophisticated supercomputers. So I think it's a combination of trying to measure uh, uh, an, uh, an Uh, try to tell a story that is very complex with with limited tools and I think the problem with climate change and I don't think there is an agreement about certain trends we, we tend to show like people like how certain places will be flooded and create this consciousness about extreme events but we don't have a way to tell a, a very a concrete story about how certain regions will get certain impacts and in, uh, allow people to understand how change how risk is changing so I, I don't think we have reached the maturity to, to, to help people take better decisions around climate change is there if you go to Davos and you see like uh, where does environmental risk rank in, in from from the the, the uh, financial perspective and the rank as the highest you look at the graph the top five are environmental so it's their consciousness about how important but we don't have yet the quality of the storyline to facilitate a more mature conversation and people being able to act on, a, on an efficient and rational way 